Today was a two-fold treat because I had fun interviewing the co-founder of Chipmunk Baking, and this is all about delicious desserts without the guilt. If you haven't heard about Chipmunk Baking, we were customers before this recording, and being advocates for what Chipmunk is doing, we didn't want to miss the opportunity to share what this is all about. I hope you enjoy learning more about what this hardworking company has been able to pull off creating yummy desserts without all the sugar. In case you are not aware, he and I have been going through an interesting time in, in Texas where I think our electricity infrastructure can handle 101, but not a feel like of one. <laughs> uh, did you guys lose power, both the storefront and were there any refrigerated items that you had to deal with? Yeah, at home I was out without power for I think three days, didn't come back until like yesterday. So that was a struggle. I ended up staying with my in-laws who they had power here in Houston and I had one shower for the entire week because <laughs> of the water issue. <laughs> But uh, bakery-wise, luckily we had built like a pretty good inventory on hand. So I just had the entire team stay home because everyone had to take care of bursted pipes and things like that. And our product doesn't have to be refrigerated, like our finished product. It's mm. actually, yeah, it has a pretty long shelf life at room temperature. So we didn't have any like spoilage or, or anything along those lines. So it worked out. The water pressure now is the, the only issue because you need to have usable water to produce food. But hopefully we'll have that by the weekend. And then this upcoming week, we're just going to be baking like nonstop. Uh, <laughs> catch up. Yeah, to catch up on everything. So do you have a bunch of outstanding orders that you've told people we're trying to get through this as fast as we can, but we got we to sort of a pause on it? No, we, we actually had enough inventory on hand to get through our outstanding orders. I guess the way like our business is right now is probably about 70 percent of it is e-commerce. So people who order on online on our website or on Amazon and then the rest is wholesale. And so e-commerce, it's not a huge inventory draw day by day. Like we can plan for it pretty well and that's easy. It's the wholesale where we can get hit surprisingly, right? Because we might be sitting there with 100 units of a certain flavor and then an order will come in for 600 of them and then we'll have to go and bake them. Luckily, slash maybe not luckily because it's not sales for us, we didn't have any big orders like that this past week. So we've just been churning along with our regular online business just fine. All right, so I'm so getting way ahead of myself. Let's get back to the beginning. Like, talk to me about this journey. I find you, your company, and the work you do utterly fascinating because I think the more I learn about nutrition, the more I realize how much there's nothing wrong with wanting the dessert. There's nothing wrong with wanting like the sugar item, but you have found that perfect sweet spot. <laughs> no pun intended. Like, you found that perfect sweet spot to not make it the bad food or someone's breaking their diet or someone's eating something wrong. So, I know that this was a journey that was, from my understanding, started from that kind of origin. So talk us through that. Yeah, Chipmunk was founded in early 2019. We actually just had our second year anniversary. But at the origin story, basically, I was rooming uh, with a guy named Jose Hernandez. And he and I, we were working together actually for in the startup scene. And he's a, a health nut. He's a certified personal trainer. He studied biology at UT Austin. And I had learned that when he was in college, he had actually been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And when that happened, instead of taking drugs like metformin or anything to control his blood sugar and his insulin, he just drastically altered his diet. He removed all processed carbs and adopted a really high fat, uh, low carb, lots of you know, lean meats, nuts, seeds, healthy oils. 
diet. And within a matter of less than half a year, he got his blood sugar back under control, like well below the regular range and has kept it there since by living this way. So he and I were roommates working for startups and by default started thinking about our own business ideas. And one weekend, I think we had a really bad business idea, but we were pretty depressed about like how we couldn't come up with something that we were both passionate about and that that could work. And so he decided to do some baking to, to try and make us feel better. He wanted to avoid the sugar. So when he went out to look for recipes, he found that, hey, there's this entire world of baking where you can use nut and seed flours. There's alternative sweeteners, monk fruit out there that don't spike your blood sugar. And he ended up making a, a bunch of stuff like donuts, uh, cookies, cakes. Honestly, most of it was really bad. But he made these chocolate chip cookies that tasted almost like the real thing. And when he gave it to me and I tasted it, something clicked for us both. One in three people in the United States either have diabetes or pre-diabetic. Over half the country is like trying to lose weight at any point in time. And then sugar is becoming more and more recognized as something that's way over consumed in our country and it needs to be cut out. And all these facts are standing out, but here Jose had to go and research how to bake it himself and go through all this trouble over the weekend to make it versus it just being readily available either online or on the grocery store shelf. So we, we literally packed those cookies that he made, took them to our office on Monday, tried selling them at the lunchroom, and I think we sold like $50 of cookies or something. Enough of a validation for us to, from there, we went to like farmer's markets from there. We we're still baking out of our apartments. And then eventually we grew to a point where we moved into a, a shared commercial kitchen. And now we actually have our own commercial bakery in Houston. We raised some money and, and built it out last year. But basically, uh, we make low-carb, gluten-free, keto-friendly cookies and, and hopefully some other desserts down the road. And then we bake it at our bakery and then we sell it in person, online, and, and now we do it wholesale as well. I know you're a huge reader. You and I discovered that through email. So in the whole e-myth concept of working on the business versus in the business, of having to really keep the ship sailing in the right direction versus manage it from one step back, are you still very much inundated now on that two-year mark. Is it getting a little more sane for you, or are you feeling like the hours are still really long and the heavy lifting is still there? There's a lot of working in the business that still occurs versus working on the business. I still bake quite regularly. I was actually, I'm the only one in the office today, so all of our online orders, the wholesale orders, I'm the one who packed them and shipped them out. That's like time that I can't spend thinking about like growth or uh, finances or whatever, like the kind of the higher level things. But compared to where I was two years ago, I do, we do have a team now, like we do have an operations manager. I've got a team of regular bakers that come in and help. We've got a couple interns. I have a digital marketing person who I can lean on for like our social media and our, our digital advertising. And I'm like, it, Jose and I are slowly building this structure, right? Where mm -hmm. like things can operate when we're not there. It's just the team is so small and the company is so small that we, we have to step in on a near daily basis, especially because you'll find out with small businesses, any business, things go wrong all the time. Like this Texas uh, winter blast is a, a great example of that. There's no way we could have predicted that or thought about it. When my team doesn't have any power at their house or they don't have any water at their house, then I'm not going to expect them to come in and <laughs> take care of the, the business. I'm going to be the one doing that for now. But maybe one day I'll get to go on vacation or something. How different was this? Like when you first started, you knew it was going to be just in the startup mode. You knew it was going to be hard. You knew you're going to be rolling your sleeves up. What were like two things you're like, oh, I wish I knew that? It's tough to say. I think one thing is I just I wish I knew or had thought a little bit more about how long of a commitment 
this is. It's like starting your own company, it, unless like you just get really lucky with some sort of specialized software. And it, it's not going to be like a one or two year thing. It's going to be probably a decade of your life, maybe even longer before you can really elevate it from something that's just you and you maybe you and a founder to there's ways to accelerate that growth. Like obviously you can use like external financing and, and things like that. But if you want to grow it like slow and steady or like in a safer way, then it's just going to take a lot of time. And that, that's something I personally just have to think about and I struggle with sometimes. Do I want to do this for a really long time or not? Like what's the next step beyond this? And that's something I guess early on, you don't even think about it. You're just so excited because it's like a brand new idea. And when you have a $0 base, $5 is like a billion percent growth. And, and then now that we've adjusted to, okay, now we're like a real business, then those longer term things start to hit home. The other thing, trying to think about what I wish I had known, it's probably just around like e-commerce in general and like how a direct-to-consumer e-commerce company really works. There's a lot of things you don't necessarily think about as the consumer. I keep thinking in my head, like shipping is the biggest component of it too. Is like early on, if you're coming up with a product idea that you want to sell online, you can be really strategic about how you want to package it and how you want to ship it. And in certain ways, like you can save 50% of your unit costs if, if you're doing it in the right way. Like some products, for example, things that are really heavy, like beverages or things that require refrigeration, like ice cream, you're going to have an insanely difficult time to do an e-commerce business. Luckily for us, and really by no means on our planning, like cookies is a, a pretty e-commerce friendly because it doesn't weigh too much and they're relatively shelf stable. But you know, sometimes I wish I was like in the popcorn business or even clothing. So just trying to understanding like the business model there where you are responsible as a company to fulfill and ship your your product, there's a lot behind the scenes that I, I hadn't really considered. And over time, like we've learned and we've gone way, way better with it. But I think if I were to start another company and it were gonna be e-commerce focused, like I would be years ahead, things that I would know to implement right away to save thousands of dollars on like shipping and, and things like that. And then on the flip side, like the product that you're making is so smart. It benefits so many people. I bet you see like a consistent stream or you certainly deserve to of whether it's like stories of folks are like, this is awesome or just there, there have to be some very rewarding moments for you. Yeah, almost on a near daily basis, I'll get an email from from a customer and they'll have a, a heartwarming story where maybe they're on a keto diet and they've lost like over 100 pounds or they have celiac disease or they're type 1 diabetic and they haven't been able to eat a cookie for a year and yeah i mean like stuff like that really helps get us through the tough parts i will say like for every positive email there's usually a negative email as well and like any a lot of the people i know in the the consumer packaged goods the cpg space they'll often say like for every high you have there's going to be 10 lows so those highs are like really deeply appreciated, but you also have to harden yourself against those lows because they come. Just whenever you're dealing with human beings, every single person is an individual. Every person's going to have kind of their own thoughts, their own opinions, and that, that can be really difficult as like a food company, but it can be rewarding as well if you're making a product that you're proud of. So like for the frustrations, how do you like, how do you make that hard decision of, I have to see this one to the end and do my best to try to like make this person happy versus I can tell I will never make this person happy. Like how in the world do you ever figure that out? 
Yeah, it's it's really the it's a tough like equation to go through in your head. I think typically what I try to do is put myself into the shoes of the customer and think if this were me and maybe like I had ordered a food product and I didn't like the taste of it or I had ordered a product online and the shipping was delayed, like how would I want to be treated? Usually that comes down to just being an active listener to the customer's problem and and not just like immediately dismissing you know, whatever they're saying, uh, being very understanding, being patient, and also trying to like reflect those those attributes back to them and say things like, hey, I really appreciate like your kindness in this situation or your patience in this situation. That, that can really help. Where you just want both people on the same page where it's, we're both human beings and we both want to have a positive experience here. I think it's when you start viewing customers as not people or when people start viewing businesses as not people, that's when like negative emotions can really come out. But yeah, we do have to set some limits to like there. Obviously, people do try to take advantage. So there's like policies in place where, you know, hey, we'll refund without any question up to a certain amount and stuff like that. But it's hugely emotionally draining some days. I'll, I'll tell you, I try not to open my email before I get to work because sometime mm-hmm. in it, I'll have a late night customer issue and then all i can think about on that 30 minute drive to work is that one thing that's you know, crazy other stuff going on <laughs> because the issue really does come down to them it doesn't come down to you like someone could have a terrible experience but their reaction is their choice so yeah. it's just it's got to be so hard for you to have to to, to live with that i mean one one thing with a, i guess a negative customer experience is if you treat it in the right way you can actually turn that into a positive customer experience too. And it's a great way to generate positive reviews for your business. So when I go through like a chain of emails where someone had a problem and I've addressed it somehow, maybe I sent them a replacement shipment or maybe refunded them for something they didn't like. Usually at the end of that exchange, I will ask for a review on the business and like nine times out of 10, they'll leave us like a five-star review. So that's it. Hmm. A secret hack to get like real reviews, and it's the kind of situations that when you're reading reviews as an independent person, that's probably the situations you want to know about. Switching to like just the product itself, I have no conception of how much is going out locally versus nationally, and and how that's evolved. Talk to me about that. Yeah, we started in farmers markets for probably our first three or four months, and so it was 100% local. And then we launched onto our website and then onto Amazon. And then all of a sudden, now we can start shipping across the country. And now with wholesale, we're actually in like about 100 accounts, small specialty retailers, small grocery stores across the country as well. I'd say revenue-wise, probably about 25 to 30% of our total revenue comes from the Houston area. But it's the largest geography by far. But it's honestly, as a Houston-based company, it's not the only business that we have. We see a lot of our business on the coasts, like on, in California and New York, typically where people have more disposable income, you could argue, and then they're used to investing that into specialty, mm. like better diet foods. Houston in particular... It's an uphill battle where people are used to eating a certain way. And there's certainly a huge population of folks here that are like have adopted a healthier lifestyle and they're looking for products like ours. But if I had to guess, the portion of that population is smaller here than it is in, in other. Yeah. yeah. And so what's popular? Like if you are there ones that are just so much standing off the chart in terms of what keeps because <laughs> you bought. I was curious about that. Yeah, our, our white chocolate macadamia cookie is our top selling cookie by a long shot. It's not wow, even. Wow, I would not have guessed that. <laughs> and our, we have cookie bites as well. And the red velvet cookie bites is also. Ooh, I need to try that. Yeah, 
those two outsell the other flavors probably like three to one if not more. and are these the uh, the dry mix or is this the it's already made those are like pre-made ready to eat products yeah. our dry mixes and our sweetener they're, they've never been hugely popular they probably only about 10 to 15 percent of our total sales but it's nice to have okay. Ingredients are sitting here anyways. Right? I, I like your dry mix. I can get so much out of this. I can do two batches and I could down like four of those cookies in a row. So H-E-B, like we got we to gotta get you an H-E-B. It's not there yet. No, that's, yeah. That's like the gold mine or, or is it not? Is that not? I'm like, I mean, just, it's, it's just my ignorance. It's funny. Yeah, like looking from the outside in, H-E-B does seem like a gold mine, right? You would think that's where any food company would want to land. But as we've been in business longer and talked to more food companies that have actually worked with H-E-B, we've been warned a few times, hey, don't jump in there unless you're really ready, unless your margins are like really strong. One thing that H-E-B is well known to do, including a few other grocery chains, is to private label products too. So if you bring in a product and it turns out to be wildly popular, you can probably expect HEB to come out with its own version of the next oh, year. Oh, Sherlock. Sherlocking people in yeah. the tech industry. That's what yeah. that's called. Yeah, so we'll have HEB keto cookies. Oh my gosh. They'll, they'll undercut you on price and it'll kill your sales in the store. So that's something like as a food business you have to be. And some chains are known to do it and some chains are known not to do it. I think probably the better store, which is actually owned by HEB, but the better chain would be like Central Market. Central Market. Market. Mm. Um, so why would Central Market not do that? But HEB would. That's so interesting. It's probably like a perception and the, the type of customer that they're trying to it's trying mm. to. So Central Market, it's all about highly curated specialty food. It's premium quality. Private labeling, it, it's more focused on like price, right? And it's like, okay, I'm getting a great deal. about buying in volume. I don't care about the brand. But the quality is, I guess it's in, implied that it's got lower quality than say a handcrafted gourmet small batch company that's making something that I'm just speculating, but I'm assuming that's why central market doesn't pursue private labeling as much. It's just that their core demographic, the people who are shopping there, they're, they don't really care so much about discounts and best deals. They're looking for like uniqueness and probably even like the story behind a brand more. So they're trying to make a statement with the brands that they're buying, mm -hmm. trying to save some money. And Whole Foods would also, um, for small specialty food companies, that's like the first big stop. And it, it's usually the, a great place to start. For us, unfortunately, our sweetener allulose is actually on their list of prohibited ingredients, which is, it, it, it's strange to us because erythritol, which is a sugar alcohol, which is a similar kind of production process, so it's similar to ours, but it's actually worse for you in, in some ways. But they allow it. Yeah, they allow erythritol. They don't allow, probably it's just that Alios is so new. It was only approved by the FDA in 2016. Okay. It, I'm sure it just takes them years to process things like that and get it approved. Alios is already sold by like the pound in HEB, in Costco, at Kroger. So I think it's only a matter of time before it starts showing up at Whole Foods as well. So in your products, is it an and or, or an or? Because I know there's the, the monk fruit sweetener. This is my lack of awareness of chemistry and <laughs> artificial sweeteners. I've actually bought monk fruit before. It's great. I have another sugar I need to ask you about. Get your opinion in a second. Don't let me forget. But is it is it that like some of the products have allulose, some of them have monk fruit? How does that work? So all, our, all of our products have both. Monk fruit by itself is 400 times as sweet as sugar. So it's incredibly potent. And if you were to use it in baking, 
you couldn't take out all the sugar and then replace it with monk fruit because you would take out like 100 grams of sugar and would only need half a gram of monk fruit. The cookie would have no mass to allulose to to get that mass added back in, but it also gets us to the right level of sweetness because allulose is 70% as sweet as sugar and then monk fruit's 400 times as sweet. So we came up with our own blend of the two to get as close to a one-to-one replacement as we can. You make a good point though, Monk fruit in the market today, everyone who thinks they're buying monk fruit is actually buying a blend of monk fruit. And usually it's blended with erythritol because if you were to buy pure monk fruit, it would be like a tiny little 100 gram bottle. Okay, yeah, I had this bag that was like this big. So I'm sure it's the former of what you just said. Yeah, a lot of companies, sweetener companies, they'll put in like huge words like monk fruit on the front. But then if you look at the back, usually erythritol is like 90% of the weight, if not more of that. Of that Crazy. Product. There's yeah. so much deception. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to go back to the grocery one for a second because I, I think this is something that's not often known. You'll know this better than me. If the it, It's quite expensive. If they approve your product and they're fine with you selling it, it's something about you have to pay for it just to exist on the shelf, like a huge cost. Isn't that how that works? Like it's People think it's so simple to just magically have something in a grocery store. Yeah. The shelves in a grocery store are like real estate. And so the best like spots, the eye level shelves, or like the end cap, that's valuable real estate. And as a small business in the grocery store, you're going to be competing for that space with the Pepsis and Coca-Colas and Lay's and all these billion dollar companies. And in the grocery world, it's well known that basically companies will pay for better placement and, and often it's expected, you know, if you're a new brand coming in, it's expected you, for you to pay certain fees to get like a primo placement to get people excited and try you out. Yeah. But it, it's a huge hurdle for a small brand to overcome because, like, hey, I'm, we're like several hundred thousand dollars a year in sales versus a billion dollar company, but we're expected to pay the same marketing fees. It's crazy. It, it seems like a, a no win situation because you've got the, the huge fees to get in there. But then, my gosh, if you go through that, like you're saying, they Sherlock you and create their own version of it. It seems like it would be almost impossible to win that that fight. Yeah. For, for a small specialty food company, unless you have like tens of millions of dollars in fundraising, which sometimes that happens, like it's a celebrity launching their own brand or something. Yeah. All um, right. So we need to get you a celebrity. So uh, many businesses like you that like have this fantastic product, but it's just really hard for people to know it's out there. Yeah. That's the story of your life, I imagine. <laughs> the marketing story of your life. Yeah. It's uh, if only people knew about us, then we would be successful. Yeah. And that is the reason, David, that is the reason I wanted to do this. It might be a drop in the bucket. If I was like, I found out about you guys. I don't even remember. It was like an article or something. And I, I have an RSS reader and so articles come across and nutrition stuff will come up. And I was like, oh, look at that. That's neat. What's this about? Oh, look at that. It's based in Houston. So I kept digging into that. And so I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I want to help in any way that I can. So hopefully this this helps to some degree on your marketing, even just a little bit. What have you found that works for you on the marketing side? What does it? Uh, marketing, I would say the, the best kind of results we've ever seen it has come from I'd say like media or like publications. Last year, the Houston Chronicle wrote a piece on Jose's journey with diabetes and how he basically turned that experience into our business idea. And I think within 
three days where that article came out, we sold like more than we had. We've had a few other articles like that. Those are always the biggest impact, but they're the hardest to achieve, right? Like it, you can't just call it the Houston Chronicle and get them to write a story about you. And if they do, then they're probably not going to write about you for another year or two years. But uh, outside of that, I would say like email marketing and text message marketing is is really effective. So once we have a customer, once they've come through our website and they're, they've bought something, they're on board, then we have a, dr- a direct line of communication with them and we can start sending them you know, emails. We try to make our emails very like value focused. Here's great gluten-free recipes or keto recipes. Here's like a video walkthrough of our bakery. We actually do like small batch exclusive flavors sometimes for our email subscribers. So like, hey, here's like a peanut butter chocolate chip cookie that you can only get if you go to the secret page. Like those things work really well for us. And that honestly, that's that's the lifeblood of any CPG company. It's going to be like your repeat customer, making sure that it's like you have a relationship with them and they become a supporter of the brand because it's expensive acquiring new customers like via advertising. It, it can cost a lot, way more than just going back to the people who already love you and making sure you give them more things that they love even more. <laughs> that's brilliant. Look, it's been 30 minutes. I know you're solo there today what is there something else you want to put out there that i what question i didn't ask i guess i would say just general advice for folks whether you're an entrepreneur in the business world is is uh, kind of that intellectual curiosity and that that applies to both reading and studying things like you and i briefly touched on how we like to read books and a lot of the times that can generate new ideas and, and lead to new paths in your life, but also reaching out to people too. I think like LinkedIn is a great tool for this where you can literally type in like a company or an industry that maybe you're curious about. And yeah, there you go. And, and for those that can't see the video, we got a, we got a very important FedEx delivery here. <laughs> it's probably been delayed by four or five days. Thanks, man. Yeah. But yeah, like you can literally find people in a company or industry that you're interested in and send them a message right there. And, and you might be on the phone with them the next day and they're typically folks are really willing to talk to you about their experiences in their life. And for me, and as a starting a business where I literally know nothing, right? Like I know nothing about e-commerce. I knew nothing about food. Everything has had to either come from like reading things online or books or like talking to people. And so I just, I would recommend that to anybody is like, Hey, maybe once a month, read a book or once a month, make a goal of just a meeting somebody new in an area. Maybe they have a skill or a talent or they work somewhere that you want to learn more about. And you'd be amazed at how many doors that's going to open up for you down the road. So many opportunities. And it's just right there for the taking. It's very Steve Jobs. I remember one of his classic lines was like that he wasn't afraid to ask for help. And like so many people miss out on opportunities because of like that courage is needed to just ask. Absolutely. Like the worst that you're going to get is no. Yeah. <laughs> Which was not different than not really different than this setting of this podcast, setting up this recording. I, I was like, let's go try it. So basically to say, well, maybe no, I'm like, okay, <laughs> no, I just want to be able to help. I, I love what you're doing and I don't, let's not miss how people find you. So go ahead and please put that out there. Yeah. The easiest place to find us is our website, www.chipmunkbaking.com. We're also on social media at chipmunk baking. That's M O N K like a Buddhist monk, not F U N K often get to find us there. And then give them the sort of, so you, I mean, do you and I talked about the one thing, the book, the one thing. Did we, was that on our list of, of exchanges? I was so impressed by that list you sent back to me. It was comprehensive beyond belief. So the book, The One Thing, talks about how the most successful companies can really narrow in on what is like that one thing that all the decisions and the values get filtered through. 
and that a company that's often plateauing or just can't get to the success they want is if you ask like multiple employees, what's this one thing that your company's doing? And you ask 10 employees, you get 10 different answers. Yeah. And so Southwest Airlines is the paradigm for that because they're like, hey, we're going to cut out the fat and we're just going to make this as a low budget airline. And the other airlines, of course, that are crazy, you can't take this luxury off or you can't not offer this. There's no way that's going to work. And of course, what should I say, billions of dollars later, it, <laughs> it was wildly successful. And the other airline companies tried to uh, mimic that. And they essentially had a watered down version of what Southwest was doing. Yeah. And it didn't work because it wasn't their one thing. And so this book, this guy has traveled and like talked to different CEOs and coached them through like how to really narrow in. And I think your product is like such a perfect example of that because you're offering the dessert. I don't know if it's like dessert without guilt or dessert and still be able to offer that nutritional value. And I just think that's really powerful what you're doing. Thank you. So congrats and virtual high five and just be glad to stay in touch. And I've got a very long book list from the one you sent to get through. It's going to last me a few years, David. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And we will talk soon. All right. Thanks, Dave.